0: Gina Della from Pella. Choose five years no interest and five months no first payment or 10-year 2.99 APR financing. Ends August 31st. Set your free consultation today at PellaWI.com slash radio or 855 PellaWI
1: live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. As Mike was just talking about, President Biden set to once again address the nation trying to explain the debacle in Afghanistan. He's supposed to speak at 145. Historically, He's been late. Wait, wait, wait a second. It is. Does he happen to be does he happen to be early? Is this President Biden? No, that wasn't President Biden. That was Sherman Potter on MASH. But bugging out the whole question. That's exactly what has happened in Afghanistan, leaving behind billions of dollars worth of equipment, which is going to end up getting either used by our enemies or sold to China or Russia so they can get the technology. We're going to talk about the, the, the latest developments and the president's insistence, not so much on getting out of Afghanistan, but getting out of Afghanistan for the political purpose of trying to do it before September 11th. That was the big political thing, regardless of of what the outcome would be. All right, the cancel culture cancels another victim. Mike, R- Mike Spalding was just talking about this story. The um, executive producer of Jeopardy, Mike Richards is now out as executive producer. And and again, it, who really cares who the next host of Jeopardy is? But this is part of the, this larger story about how the, the cancel culture has just taken over. But by way of background, Mike Richards has been one of the -the behind-the-scenes guys who was responsible in part for the success of the televised game show, The Price is Right, and then he moved on to Jeopardy. So he, he was the executive producer. He was the guy behind the scenes. When he was at The Price is Right, he was hired. To do a show, a, a podcast, and this is kind of when podcast was, podcasting was starting to become big. He was hired to do a podcast, um, where it was supposed to be an irreverent podcast. It was called The Random, R-A-N-D-U-M-B show. And it was an entertainment show, and he was supposed to be cutting edge, and they were supposed to be funny. And this is seven or eight years ago. And in the podcast, in an attempt to be funny, and you can argue whether it was appropriate or not. And, uh, you know, he, he apparently, you know, made remarks about women. He had women on the podcast, and they were having one of these back and forths, and he made jokes about women's, um, you know, weight and things like that. He used derogatory terms for little people, and it was it was a cutting edge sort of thing. And again, you can argue whether it was funny or not, and you can argue whether it was appropriate or not, but it, it was probably no different than, you know, what you would hear on, I, I don't know, any of the comedy specials that were on HBO or Showtime at the time. And certainly no different than the kind of acts that you would often hear, you know, if you went to different comedy clubs. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It, it's just, it, it it's what passed for, for comedy until, recently. So what happens is Alex Trebek passes away. Um, he is then named as the permanent host of Jeopardy all right fine well you have some people who are upset with that you have other people who are just kind of looking for stuff to be outraged about so they go back and they find you know some of the excerpts from this stupid podcast that the guy did seven or eight years ago that he was hired to do that was the purpose hey we want you to be edgy we want you to be cutting edge we want you to make off-color jokes it's a podcast after all okay so they find this they, you know, take these remarks that he made and these jokes. And look at what this guy was saying. He was making remarks about the size of women or things like that. And all of a sudden, this becomes this whole Internet thing. Oh, this guy can't, you know, seven or eight years later, he was doing this performance and he was doing the show and he made these jokes and these were inappropriate. So now we've got to cancel him. He can't be the host of Jeopardy. And so all these people complain and the folks that run Jeopardy give in. They said, yeah, OK, this is this is bad. All right. We're, we're not we don't want this controversy. He's going to stay not going to be the new host. He's going to continue doing what he's doing. Well, the announcement today is he, he's out. They've just decided that he could not survive the firestorm from this this podcast that he was tasked to do and hired to do in the entertainment industry. Well, he can't survive. He, he's got to end up losing his job. And I don't think there's anything on that podcast And that would be worse than if you're a listener, for example, of the Howard Stern radio show on on Sirius, or if you were a listener to Don Imus or whatever, you you listen to some of the shock jock stuff that's there, and they're cutting edge, they're making inappropriate jokes, they're doing these sorts of things. Well, it's, it's the same kind of thing, except with a much sort of smaller audience. But now... He, he he's canceled. So the bottom line is they had to let him go from Jeopardy. So he's lost his behind-the-scenes gig as well, which raises these questions again. I don't care about Mike Richards one way or the other, but it's where where do we where do we stop? I mean, if you are an actor and 15 years ago you were in a movie where you played some a stereotypical character or you you made inappropriate jokes or whatever, I mean, can, can you not? Can you now not perform? You know, in new parts now. I mean, are you going to be canceled? And again, it raises the whole question. I, I do not understand in today's day and age where, if you're going to say to a guy like Mike Richards that he can't have his job, how is Jimmy Kimmel still hosting a, a TV show on on ABC? For those of you who who don't might not remember, I mean, Jimmy Kimmel really came to prominence on a show on Comedy Central called The Man Show that ran for five years from 1999 to 2004. And the whole premise of this was men are men are pigs. The way the show is described is it celebrated and lampooned stereotypic male uh, behavior in a sexually charged humorous light. Um, the, The Man Show, I'm reading from Wikipedia now, is particularly well known for its buxom female models, the Juggy Dance Squad, who would dance in themed, revealing costumes at the opening of every show in the aisles of the audience just before the Man Show went to commercial break and during the end segment, girls on trampolines. Okay, I... I mean and I remember I wasn't a huge fan of it at the time I thought it was sort of stupid and juvenile but I mean this this Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla that this was this was how they made their name and I just raised this issue because if If the cancel culture says that a guy like Mike Richards, who was hired to do, again, this particular podcast seven or eight years ago, now can't even work behind the scenes at Jeopardy, all right, how is Jimmy Kimmel still on ABC? I mean, seriously, where do we draw the line when it comes to people, particularly in the entertainment field, who did stuff 10 years ago that they were hired to do we want you to be cutting edge we want you to be inappropriate we want you to do off-color jokes on this podcast and stuff like that but now it's like oh my gosh we're so offended by this eight or nine years later that you, you can't do anything else I just i seriously wonder where the the cancel culture ends. And I know there's some people out there that think, oh, these people just got what they deserved. How dare anybody ever make an off-color remark? And, yes, they have to suffer the consequences. Well, okay, if you're that perfect person, fine. But I, I just wonder at what point in time do we end up saying enough is enough? When we come back, interesting story out of Chicago. Who got it right? Who got it wrong i'll explain we'll discuss
0: welcome back to jeff wagner on wtmj
2: this week's sponsor for the jeff wagner home improvement showcase back again is its presenting sponsor our friends at great midwest bank thanks again to great midwest bank for being such great partners great midwest bank you're simply local equal housing home renovation lender you know one of our, our texters reminds me perhaps jimmy kimmel's most infamous Politically correct stunt beyond like the juggy dancers on the Man Show. He, Carl Malone, who uh, is an all all pro, a Hall of Fame NBA player, played for the Utah Jazz. Carl Malone had a reputation for being inarticulate. They used to have this recurring skit where Jimmy Kimmel would dress up in blackface. With a a bald skull cap and pretend to be Carl Malone and Kimmel would speak in dialect and say all sorts of stupid things and and again i i, I it, it's amazing to me that where these double standards are and again I don't care if Jimmy Kimmel is on ABC late night or not but this idea that okay you can do stuff like that and, and it's okay no problem but you know you get hired to do a podcast and you're edgy and you make you know arguably off color jokes or whatever and and you know you, you can't you, you can't work at your job anymore. I mean, seriously, where do you draw the line, especially given the fact that these people, they, they, they're supposedly entertainers. Now, you can argue it's inappropriate entertainment, stuff like that, but they're, but they're entertainers. It's not even like we're looking at the governor of Virginia who, when he was a kid, you know, shows up at some place in blackface or whatever. this is These people are entertainers. They're supposed to be funny. They're supposed to be cutting edge. Where, where do you draw the line? I just wonder where we are going. All right, which brings me to... This story out of Chicago. The woman's name is Rebecca Furlett. She um, and her husband, she now lives in Arizona, but she and her husband got divorced um, about seven years ago. So she lives in Arizona. Uh, the husband lives in Chicago. They have an 11 year old son and they share custody. All right. So they're in court. A week or two ago and the court case has nothing to do with visitation or anything that they share custody it has to do with a child support question okay so that's kind of the background of this so everybody's in there and the attorneys think you're going to be arguing about you know a child support well what happens is the judge the chicago judge asks her whether she's vaccinated now this is out of the kind of out of the clear blue. Are you vaccinated? And she says, No, I'm 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 not vaccinated. I have some you know prior medical issues and stuff. I'm not vaccinated. The dad is vaccinated. At which point in time, the judge says, Here here's the deal. I am revoking your joint custody of of the kid. He says that um, I think you pose a risk. To the the child by being around the eleven year old child when you are in fact not vaccinated, and I'm going to deny you custody. You cannot see her unless him, unless and until you get vaccinated. All right, eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accudent Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now there has been a development since this happened, and this case got all this attention. But but the bottom line is the judge's initial decision strips the mother of her parental rights in this divorce situation um over the fact that, you know, she has volunteered, that she is not vaccinated. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, did the judge go too far? Is this a legitimate issue to say, all right, you know, COVID is a problem and you, mom, have chosen not to get vaccinated. So regardless of how good a mom you might be, regardless of how good a home you might provide, I'm not going to allow you to be you're not going to have visitation rights. You're not we're going to revoke the custody rights of you and your child because you are, in fact, not vaccinated. 855-616-1620. That is the Accident mortgage talk and text line. My take on this. Look, and this again comes from the perspective of of somebody who is vaccinated and believes that, that people should, in fact, get vaccinated. All right. That's my background on this. But I think this is crazy. I think this judge's initial ruling was absolutely nuts at some point in time. Again, it's you know, we we have parents who retain their parental rights. You know, for doing all sorts of terrible things to the kids, short of putting out cigarettes on their forehead. And you do not have custody that is revoked in this particular situation. There is no law that says that people need to get vaccinated. There, there, there isn't. There's not some national requirement that's there. And to even consider stripping parental rights from an otherwise qualified parent because they've made the decision not to get vaccinated, which might be a dumb decision, might be a bad decision. But the last time I checked, this still was a free country. 855-616-1620, that's the acunate mortgage talk and text line. Judge's initial decision that's gotten a ton of attention was to strip mom of her parental rights unless and until she becomes vaccinated. Is that going too far? 855-616-1620, we discuss
1: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. One of our texters says, well, you know what? What if the judge didn't believe a reason for not getting vaccinated? To which my response is, Who cares? I mean it's some see this is the type of thing that really I think becomes scary and this is from the perspective of somebody who's pro vaccine that this is the police state sort of stuff I mean at last time I checked People still have the right to make the decision whether they want to get vaccinated or not. Right. And and this idea that now, look, I, I get the fact that we've got these rules that say vaccination is a condition if you want to travel overseas and your employer might set these vaccinations. But now getting vaccinated is going to be a condition as to whether or not you can see your child or not where you want to talk about scary police state, you know, government overreach and things like that. I mean, it's. It is almost mind boggling that now you would have a court system that would start coming in and saying, "Okay, we're we're going to use this justification that the best interest of the child." Well, we don't think it's in the best interest of the child if a parent is unvaccinated. So, where do we draw the line? Are we now going to go sort of door to door, trying to figure out, okay, who's not vaccinated, and then we're going to appoint guardians of light and to consider moving in and taking custody of your children away if you're not vaccinated? And and, and that really is the next step. And I don't mean to be alarmist about this but i mean seriously the, the justification for finding that you are a bad mom is the fact that you've made the decision not to get vaccinated now i think that's a bad decision but still and scott Dr. scott and kenosha scott you're on wtmj
3: scott 100 hey uh, percent agreement with you can you hear me i can go ahead hey,
2: <laughs> you're that's ordering your question? lunch i got it One
3: hundred yeah sorry about that uh, bad timing I am uh, in 100% agreement with you. It's a uh, We have got to stop letting lawmakers decide what's right and what's wrong for us. And uh, that's a breach of power by the judge yeah. to execute that without any law that says, it's a requirement to have a vaccination.
2: Well, well, right. No, thanks for the call, Scott, and, and enjoy the Dr. Pepper too. But here's the, here's, I mean, let's l- think about this. So, l- let's take it to the logical extreme. Now, in this case, the dad was in fact vaccinated. Okay, so, but, but what if? What if, in the context of this, and this was this wasn't a custody hearing, this was a a, again, it was a child support hearing. What if the the dad hadn't been vaccinated? So now you've got the mom is not vaccinated, the dad's not vaccinated. Is the kid is the judge going to now order the the child taken away from the parents because they have made the decision to not get vaccinated? I mean, look, and again, this comes from perspective of somebody who's pro vaccination. This is the scary thing that you have with government overreach and the quote-unquote state trying to use the, the powers of the law or trying to assume power under the law to, again, take away some pretty significant individual rights. And I keep going back to, you know, I think about all the things, all the just really bad things that parents can do and not end up losing custody of their kids. In this case, an otherwise good mom, it's her custody stripped. Now, she has not been able to see her child for the the better part of the last couple of weeks. Now, what I said was this was an initial ruling. The the update of this is yesterday in the face of about a week and a half of relentless criticism, threats of appeal, etc., without explaining why the judge backed down and then, you know, removed that part of his order that said that the mom can't see the kid due to the vaccinations. But I guess the scary thing is that you have people who think that they have the power to do that anyways. It is a scary example of the police state and the fact that in some cases we have people purporting to occupy, to, um, to act under the power of the law who are using the the pandemic or COVID or whatever to claim the authority to really, I think, infringe on people's significant rights. I understand that, you know, employers can say if you want to come into the workplace, you gotta be vaccinated. That that's all well and good. But it's different from saying I'm gonna take your kid away from you if you're not vaccinated. Unbelievable. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. The pennant race is heating up, and this week in the Bay Area, it's a potential NLCS preview. The brew crew head to San Francisco for a four-game showdown against the Dodgers. One in the books, Brewers three, San Francisco one last night. Our coverage starts at 8 o'clock this evening, sponsored by Steinhoffel's Labor Day Sale. I am telling you, the Brewers are, in fact, for real. Plenty of room on the bandwagon. Jump on it. All right. This is an example where... You can be right and you can be wrong at the same time. As part of the effort to get people out of Afghanistan, an effort that has been botched because we should have been systematically moving our allies in Afghanistan out of Afghanistan over the course of the last several months, or we should have delayed our withdrawal, in order to make sure that the people that we promised were going to get out did, in fact, get out. But but that's Joe Biden. When it's out of Afghanistan, he wanted to have the political victory of saying, hey, I got us out of there before September 11th, the 20-year anniversary, and so we've done it. And, of course, the cost in personnel – in material, in world prestige has been absolutely huge, and it is probably, in my opinion, guaranteed that Joe Biden is, is a one-term president. Now, I his poll numbers have absolutely cratered, and and Biden and his folks around him are banking on the idea that the American public, they're going to forget. It, it, they're going to forget all the stuff that's happened over the last couple of weeks, and the bottom line is, as long as they're out of Afghanistan, they won't care about the circumstances. I think that's a bad political misjudgment, but, but time will tell. But anyhow, as, as I already the other day, if we are bringing our allies out of Afghanistan, they have to go someplace, and that—that's it. So, you, and one of the places that um, Afghans are going to be brought to is Fort McCoy, the you know the military base in the center of of the state. And right now, I think the estimates are there is like five thousand you know refugees who are there, and it might go up to ten thousand, and ultimately they're going to be. You know, resettled. Now, I, I think that, I mean, obviously, if you want to get people out, they have to have some place to go. Alright, so that, that's, that's fair enough. And for people who are just saying, okay, not in my backyard, you know, we, we don't want any of the refugees, well, I think that's a sort of narrow-minded attitude. People have to go somewhere. At the same time, there, there are sort of legitimate concerns and there are questions about, hey, are, are we, in fact, you know, vetting the people? You know, the people that we are bringing out. Who, you know, who exactly are they? And you know, are do we want to make sure that? And the example I gave when we talked about this um, a few days ago was: I mean, I I still remember during Jimmy Carter's era, you, you had the Marialito boat boatlift, which gave Fidel Castro the opportunity to essentially clean out his prisons. And y- yes. And I'm not suggesting that everybody who came over on that boat lift was, was a criminal. Far from it. But many were. And, you know, I, I saw firsthand that problem because we had people that were resettled you know, from Cuba and Fort McCoy who were criminals and they had ties to South Florida because they had family members there, and that was one of the things that led to an explosion of cocaine in Ma- in Wisconsin in, in the 80s because you had people that were resettled here. Thank you, Jimmy Carter. They had contacts in South Florida, and they started running dope up from South Florida to, to Wisconsin, and that's that is just the reality, and I'm not saying that Anywhere near a majority of the people that um, were settled at Fort McCoy, you know, had that proclivity. But it was a legitimate factor. So what happens is uh, you have a number of Republican congressmen who go out to visit Fort McCoy. And they're saying, hey, look, you know, what we need to do is, you know, we of course we want to take people in. But at the same time, you know, we want to make sure that people are properly vetted we want to make sure that the people who are coming over here and are going to be ultimately released into communities you know we want to make sure that these are the folks who you know actually have the special immigrant visas that's what they call them you know sivs because we want to make sure that all right this these aren't people who are coming over to plot like a second 9-11 i don't think that that is an unreasonable point to make all right into which Tony Evers, on a Democratic uh, bus tour, he decides to wade in. And you know, some reporter asks him, well, well, what about this this concern that we, we want to make sure that the people that are being, you know, going to be resettled in Wisconsin or elsewhere, they're coming into Fort McCoy? What about the concern that, you know, they, they have, you know, the, the special immigration visas, that they're the people who should be coming in? And this is Evers' remark. Um, Let's see. Yesterday. Here's the way it's reported by the Associated Press. Republican concerns over the screening process for thousands of Afghan refugees who stood side by side with Americans and are now being processed through Fort McCoy are unfounded dog whistle crap, quote unquote, said Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers. Um, let's see. They raised the spec they Or they like to, all right, Republicans criticizing the vetting of refugees are vastly uninformed, said Tony Evers. Or they like to raise that specter of maybe some of those little kids I saw at Fort McCoy are terrorists. And maybe some of those adults I saw at Fort McCoy who were working hand in hand with our soldiers and airmen in Afghanistan, somehow they are terrorists. Even though they've been vetted four or five or six times even before they left Afghanistan. To me, it's dog whistle crap and we don't need any of that. Okay, our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text line. Isn't that the real key? I mean, now if it's true that you have people that are coming over here and have been in vet- have been in fact vetted four or five or six times. All right. Well, th- that's th- that's fine. That's not the worry. Is it a legitimate concern to say, hey, we want to make sure that the people that we are taking over here and we are going to be putting into the community, that they have, in fact, been vetted four or five or, or six times and, and do not pose a risk? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text line. See, this is one where I just... I I understand the the politics of this, but at the same time, yeah, I think we have an obligation to bring people over and to, uh, again, do everything we can to assimilate them. I'm the guy that's ripping the Biden administration for bailing and leaving so many more people behind, but... At the same time, is it unreasonable to say, hey, we want to make sure that the people that are coming over are, in fact, the, the people that should be coming over? 855-616-1620, that's the Accurate mortgage talk and text line. I mean, my comment to the governor would be, all right, governor, you're, you're exactly right. Are you sure that all these people that are in Fort McCoy right now and all the thousands more that are coming, are you, in fact, sure that they have been vetted four or five or six times? Because my guess is there's some that haven't. All right, we discuss it. In just a minute.
0: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's one of our texters, Jeff. Uh, Congressman Tom Tiffany was there, and he indicated that zero of the refugees at for, in uh, Fort McCoy were SIVs, meaning we know really nothing about these people. I think they are valid concerns. Now, look, I, I don't know about that, but here's here's the bottom line for the governor just simply to dismiss all these concerns i think is incredibly irresponsible and again i understand it's political pandering that's here this all goes back again to the incredibly inept way the biden administration has handled things over the last several months meaning that if we were going to be bugging out of afghanistan we should have been doing it in a systematic fashion which included all right let's identify all the people that have worked with the u.s over the last 20 years let's figure out all those people that qualify for those sivs and, and then let's begin the process of, of getting them out. And they should have been doing this in a systematic way over the last six or seven months instead of this, gee, th- this, this chaos that has been going on. And you've seen the chaos in a lot of things as well. I don't think anybody, certainly not me, is arguing that our Afghan allies need to be taken out of there. We made a commitment to them because, you know, very well, if you leave them behind, you know what is going to happen and it's not going to be good. So, yes, first of all, we should have been spending the last several months systematically removing people, getting them out. So we're not in this panic mode now. That's number one. If we would have been doing that over the course of the last several months, it would have guaranteed the vetting that people are talking about that it would have guaranteed that the people who are leaving are in fact the people that are supposed to leave, the people who are our allies, etc, and the people that really you know are the the sivs No problem with that at all. The question is, really, Governor Evers, how do you know that everybody that's in Fort McCoy has been vetted four or five or six times? Now, maybe you have some information that nobody else seems to have, but otherwise, to dismiss this, I think is just incredibly irresponsible. And then the governor goes on to say, well, I I saw children, you know, playing. They're not terrorists. Well, the concern I don't think is about the children. The concern I think is about, you know, some of the adults. Now, it may very well be, and I certainly hope it's the case, because I never want to get in a situation where I am rooting for us to, you know, open up the borders and allow terrorists in. It may very well be that the people who are coming over really have, in fact, been vetted. They're the ones that qualify and aren't going to pose any problems at all. And I hope that that's the case. But at the same time, given the chaotic way that this has been handled over the course of the last few weeks, is there anybody that's really confident uh, about that? And and even if it's not the people that are at Fort McCoy right now, what's it going to be over the next week or two, presumably as as you get more of a flow in? I, I just... I guess it's disappointing to me that that the governor, instead of of recognizing that there there may be legitimate concerns and looking out for the overall welfare of the state, saying what, what I think is what most of us believe. We have a commitment to the people who worked with us in Afghanistan. It is despicable that we have bailed out on so many of them by the president's insistence on, again, getting out by tomorrow in order to, I mean, satisfy some sort of political goals. But, but having said all that, alright, maybe the better argument is, yeah, we, we want everybody here who should be here, but we want to really make sure that there is a background check that, that's done because we want to make sure that we are not endangering the safety of, of people in the United States. So, I, this is not concerns about Concerns about making sure that the appropriate people that are coming in from Afghanistan, that, that is not dog whistle crap. I'm sorry, Governor. It's just not. It is a legitimate concern. Now, you might want to say that this is overhyped because I am convinced I, I know all the people that have come in. I know all these uh, three or four thousand people and I've reviewed their backgrounds and I am confident that you know, we have done all we can to make reasonably certain that the people that are coming over here are the people that should come over. Now, maybe the governor's looked at thousands and thousands of resumes, but I kind of doubt that and hopefully this isn't a problem but at least it's a legitimate concern to raise now on the flip side of this for anybody who says well we shouldn't let afghan refugees in and you know they have no place in wisconsin you can't have that you know we, we can't say we have a commitment to these people to help get them out and yet say not in my backyard so the the answer is is in between. The answer is yes, we want to take people, but the people that come over here, we want to make sure that they have, in fact, been vetted. And if Governor Reavers is correct when he says vetted four or five, six, seven times, whatever he says, that that's that's great. I'm not sure the governor really knows that, and I think those are words that may come back to haunt him. It, it's just one of these things where you'd like to see the politicians working together. You'd like to see the governor understanding that this is a legitimate, at least, potential issue. And instead of just purely playing politics, and if you want to say the Republican congressmen are doing the same thing, that, that's fine. But it would be one where we say, yeah, we want to have people come in. But, yeah, at the same time, we want to double, triple check that the people that are coming in are the people that we intend to have come in. Is that really too much to ask? I would think not. And this is Jeff Wagner. By the way, for the handful of texters who are saying, well, I, why, why are you so hard on Biden? This is Trump, 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 Trump. Now, I, here's the bottom line. As I've said repeatedly regarding Afghanistan, the this has been screwed up going back to the first president, George Bush. First President Bush um, blew it. After the Russians left Afghanistan by not making commitment, Bill Clinton exacerbated that. Uh George W. Bush got us into Afghanistan. Barack Obama escalated it. Trump negotiated a withdrawal without including the Afghan government um, that, that set a time certain. And and Biden has just made it worse. But for people who say, well, you know, he was he was stuck with the Trump deal. Joe Biden has spent eight months pretty much reversing everything that Donald Trump did in in four years. If you don't think that Biden wanted to get us out of Afghanistan, don't don't you think he would have found a way to do it? But Joe Biden hasn't believed in us being in Afghanistan since the beginning. He tried to talk Barack Obama out of that. So back, you know, back in 2009, it was very, very clear to the commanders that Biden wanted no part of any continued military commitment in Afghanistan. And he wanted us out by September 11th. So he could say he ended the war in Afghanistan, by the 20-year anniversary of September 11th. So a lot of this was staged politically. If you don't think that Biden could have done this in a different way, I'm sorry, he could. And a lot of the different bad choices that were made that Biden now tries to lay off on the military, well, the commanders were unanimous. It was because Joe Biden made clear that that he wanted out. So when you say, all right, why why did we give up the the Bagram Air Force Base, for example. And he says, well, it was the military that said that. Well, it was because the military was tasked with saying, okay, we got to get everything out by, again, the end of August. So we've got a limited amount of resources. We know that this president is not going to authorize us sending a few more thousand troops back into Afghanistan to secure this, this other airport or to secure the U.S. embassy. So, yes the military did a lot of this stuff but they did it under the directive that Biden said we're not putting more troops in there period and we're getting everybody out so you know right or wrong you know Biden owns this one and it's not a perspective of should have we been out it's a question of how did we go about the process of of getting out and is there a way that we could have done it without leaving billions of dollars Billions of dollars in military equipment behind, so the Taliban is going to take um, our Black Hawk helicopters and, you know, sell them to China and sell them to Russia, and they're going to take all these other, you know, U.S.-made material, and they're going to use it for Lord knows what purposes. But but this idea that people would let President Biden just kind of wash his hands of this, that, that's, that's, that's silly. To the extent the military made and made recommendations, it, it's because they were working with the constraints that Joe Biden had. Now, you 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 can agree with them, you can disagree with them, but this idea that Biden does not own all the stuff that has been going on over the course of the last, you know, month or two—I think, you know, you're drinking the Kool-Aid. Back with lots more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner,
1: live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show, and now WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: Well. The bullies won. During the uh, twelve o'clock hour of yesterday's program, we talked about what was going on in Waukesha, and and see to me, th- there is a there's a larger issue about school lunches in in Waukesha. But if you haven't been following the story, here, here is here is the deal. Pre-COVID, the way the school lunch programs worked was that kids who came from families with a, a an income below a certain level would get free lunches. Kids who came from families above that level, but still below another level, could qualify for reduced prices lunches. And in Waukesha, the, about about thirty six percent of the, the students in Waukesha qualified for either free or reduced reduced price lunches, which means that about you know sixty four percent. Um, did not. So, you know, mom and dad had the ability to, heaven forbid, take care of their own children. Oh, that's amazing that, you know, mom and dad, you know, should should pay for the, their, their kids as opposed to, I don't know, seniors on fixed incomes or things like that. So after after COVID. One of the things that happened is the federal government developed this program that said, "Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to call it a seamless summer option. And what we are going to do is we're going to waive all those income requirements and we're going to provide free breakfast and lunch for everybody, regardless of of income. And the taxpayers are going to do that. So if mom and dad, I don't know, make $125,000 a year, don't worry. You don't have to pay for your kid's hot lunch. You don't have to worry about um, packing a, a lunch for your child. We'll just have the taxpayers pay for this right? So that was the background. One of the things they found in Waukesha, and I think a lot of people who work in the school lunch programs will tell you this. One of the things that they found is by opening it up to everybody, you had an incredible amount of waste because you're you're just giving it to everybody. It's sort of like i don 't know going to an open bar at a, at a wedding where if you, if you got to buy the drink well okay you 're you're, you're less likely to just you know order seven or, or eight of them and leave them on the table in the school lunch program. What they found is a bunch of kids, particularly the kids who came from found maybe mom and dad sent a lunch with them but it 's okay i 'm going to take the lunch and here i 'm going to eat the cookie and i 'm going to throw everything out. They found that there was incredible waste but there 's also this whole larger question about. Whether or not the taxpayers should be paying for and providing free food to kids whose parents have the wherewithal to do it. Okay, so that, that's the backdrop of this. And again, like I say, in Waukesha, the overwhelming majority of children came from families that did not, that that had enough wherewithal to either provide or pay the, for the lunches. So the school board voted unanimously that what they were going to do is they were going to discontinue their participation in this sort of seamless summer program, and they were going to revert back to the where things were. Now, this is where it gets interesting, because the media coverage on this was absolutely appalling. There was a disgraceful story in the Washington Post the other day that implied that the Waukesha School Board had done away with free food for the needy kids or the reduced-price lunches, which, of course, is not true um you know it's just it's just absolutely false what they were doing is they were going back to the way the program used to be uh, before this um a school here's the headline a school district opted out of a free meals program saying students could become spoiled all right so that's that's kind of the backdrop well after the washington post runs this story and the local paper runs a version of it the 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 left-wing hate mob just descends, and these school board members are just pummeled with. Emails calling them Nazis and things like that. Their addresses are are published. They're doxed. It's all these different things, and they're under this incredible pressure. And I, I get it. All these people saying all these terrible things. You know, how dare you deny people these 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 poor children? How dare you deny them their food? And of course, that that's never what this was about. The question is, if you've got two doctors that are pulling in you know four hundred thousand dollars a year, should the taxpayers be underwriting you know the school lunches for those kids? which was the issue. Well, in any event, special meeting of the school board last night, and unfortunately, at least in my opinion, five members of the nine-member board caved in to the, this pressure and reversed themselves and now have said, okay, we're going to give free lunches to, to everybody. And look, and I understand why they did it. They, they couldn't stand the heat. Um, their, their justifications are, well, you know, we, we were looking at this and one of the ones says that um, maybe we didn't take into fact that some people were experiencing situational poverty due to the pandemic. I have no idea what that 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 means. I mean, <laughs> if your income is above a, a certain level, what's this situation Poverty that you're talking about. Okay. Our number 855-616-1620. That is the AccuNet mortgage talk and text line. Okay. Everything is right in the world. I guess now the left wing hate mob can dial itself down a couple notes because everybody is going to be getting their free lunches regardless of what your income is. And I say free. And of course, it's not free. It means taxpayers, including I don't know, senior citizens on fixed income, you're going to be paying for the school lunch in Waukesha of people whose, I don't know, parents have more than enough ability to provide, you know, for their kids' lunches and breakfasts. 855 That's the Academic Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My opinion, the school board caved, and, and they got it wrong. This is not about providing free or low-cost lunches to kids who need it. It's never been about that. To me, this is about this idea that the government has an obligation to provide free breakfast and lunches for all children, regardless of need. And I don't accept that premise. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think?
1: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620.
2: 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, Jeff, MPS has been doing free lunch and breakfast for all students for at least five years now. The reason for doing it is um, not to single out low student income. Well, first of all, in, in MPS, you have an overwhelming majority, I believe, of the students who would qualify for free or reduced-price lunches. So it, it it's not that big uh, an extension. In Waukesha, like I say, 64% otherwise wouldn't. And as far as this, well, we don't want people to be stigmatized. Give me a break. I mean, first of all, there's ways you can do this. I mean, nowadays, it's meal cards that people use as a general rule. It's not people reaching into their pocket and pulling out money. There are ways you can do this to, to not stigmatize you know people. But I guess the, the larger point of this is, have we now come to that point? Is this this idea that the taxpayers, because there are no free lunches, despite what some people think, is the notion now that the taxpayers have to subsidize the food for people, regard for kids, regardless of need. And, and I guess that's, that's the bigger philosophical issue that we have. Do parents have no responsibility now for feeding their children? And again, we're not talking about the parents that are low income, who qualify for the free lunches or the reduced price lunches. We are talking about the senior citizen on a fixed income who is paying federal income tax on their Social Security payments who is now underwriting the cost of the student lunch for the two doctors in Waukesha who pull in four hundred, five hundred thousand. 500000 a year, <laughs> that's to me, that's just nuts. It's absolutely nuts, Jeff. The bottom line is, we live in a different world today. Used to be, you went out, got a job, fed your family was your first priority, um, and then they go on. Right, it, it is. It's this this shift that now says we cannot expect anybody to do anything for themselves. You know, we cannot expect people to take responsibility for their children. And it's it's just one of these things that, you know, the, the whole notion of, of at what point in time do does the government do we say to the government? No, you, you don't. Enough is enough. And this is one of those classic examples of this. So th- this idea, and I guess what's troubling is I'm getting these texts from people saying, oh, you, you don't understand. This, this is the government's responsibility, and this is what the taxpayers should do. And I guess my question then is, is: is, is there any limitation? I mean, is this now the idea that you have no individual responsibility at all for your kids. Should we now be in a situation where wh- why do we stop at breakfast and lunch? You know, wh- what What about dinners? Why, you know, how about clothing the kids? You know, okay, should it now be the taxpayer's responsibility for everybody? You know, we're now going to buy you all your back-to-school uniforms because we, we can't expect, I don't know, we can't expect parents to go out and go shopping and buy blue jeans and pencils and things, you know, like that, that that are out there. No, we want to have this big government thing, and we want it to be cradle to grave, and at some point in time, you, you do have to say, where does the role of the government stop? And I understand there's some of you out there that believe it doesn't stop anywhere, that believes that, that it is the government's responsibility to take care of everybody for everything, and we can't depend on individual people to take care of their children. You know, We we have to have the big government that does it for everybody, and th- this is just another one of these examples of it. Now, I'm not going to really fault the Waukesha School Board, because the five of these members, they, they were subjected to all sorts of abuse. You had this the, the left wing hate mob that arose, went after them, put their names out there, caused all this pressure. It, it's easier to go along. I, I get it. It's easier just to say, what the heck? You know, it's free money from the federal government, meaning all the taxpayers. That's OK. We're just going to take it. and We'll let everybody have the food and then everybody is going to be happy. Well, yeah, you've got everybody happy, but now you've got another permanent entitlement that's out there saying you don't have to pay for a kid's food anymore. Where does it end? Just asking.
1: Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: Just just one final thought on why Waukesha was right in the first place to reject the quote-unquote free food for for all. And I'm getting texts, several texts from people who are in like the food service business that are all making the same point. And again, one of the things they said was was the, the waste is incredible. Again, it's I, I use the example of the open bar at, at the wedding. And I understand this is food for kids, but it, it's this sort of thing. You go to that open bar at the wedding, it's free stuff. Here, I'll, I'll take the drink, and then you take two sips of it, and then you kind of leave it on the table, ah, and then you forget about that, you go back to the bar, because you're not paying for it. And so there, there's an incredible amount of waste. And that's what they found in Waukesha, that the kids, particularly the kids who didn't need the food because they were being sent with lunches or they were being fed at home. What they just, they, what they would do is they take it, you'd eat the cookie and you throw the rest out. Here's this. Jeff, I am in food service sales. I sell food to a lot of schools. My schools have said that there has never been more waste. They also have to serve all components of the meal. That, that's right. So you get the lunch and, and they can't, the kid can't say, I want the macaroni and cheese, but I don't want the vegetable. They're not allowed to do that. So you, you put everything on the plate. So anyhow. They also have to serve all components of the meal. So they see children grab the meals and immediately throw away all the items that they don't want to eat. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that, That's right. That That's going on. Hey, I, I don't want the vegetables. Well, I have to give you the vegetables. OK, you give them the vegetables and then you just throw it away. And since you're not paying for it, it there, there's no skin in the game. It doesn't matter. Um, the texture continues. There are ways to make sure kids are not singled out if they need assistance. Hello, technology. The parents that can't afford to pay the low price for school lunch or send a lunch to their children should do so. A- absolutely. It, 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 it's just. It's just simple. It is just straightforward. And I really think that it would be interesting for all these people who think that we should be giving away all this free stuff, you know, maybe just kind of sit in the background in a school lunchroom sometime, uh, especially in some of these more affluent school districts where the parents are now where the kids are getting the free food but don't really need the free food. And just watch watch the waste. Watch the stuff that's getting thrown around. Watch all the stuff that just goes into the trash can because the kids don't want to eat it. It has to be served and they don't need it. This is a problem. Jeff, when does it end is a fair question. I don't want my tax money paying for food for kids whose parents should supply their own food as they know they will eat. Wasted food and parents no longer responsible for the kids' food. This is what the government is. Um... Yeah. Um, Jeff, school boards would do a lot more for kids in the long run if they taught them basic economics from kindergarten on. Teach them to fend for themselves. Don't spend more than you can make. Um, yeah. Well, I think that there is an example of that. Um, Jeff, as a former administrator in a school, I can tell you. That at one point in the milwaukee public schools every student had to punch in a number so therefore you never knew who was receiving a free lunch right that that argument that there is a stigma is i I think in many respects i was going to say it is completely bogus i'm not sure it's completely bogus but but there's it there's there's a lot of bogus that is built into that because that's right see they don't take cash Remember what, what typically happens is you, you have cards, like little credit cards, and the parents are responsible for making sure that the money is in the card. So, I mean, those are the cards that you use. It's the numbers that you use. That's how you do it. Now, to the extent that there is any sort of stigma, if your parents, and we've talked about this before, fall behind and, you know, it goes beyond like 10 or 20 or 30 dollars and the parents don't put the money in the account, well, yeah, then what happens is the kid gets a cheese sandwich, which is Okay, more of a lunch than I've had today. But that's, oh, that's terrible. They just give them a cheese sandwich because mom and dad have been too lazy to put money in the account. But the bottom line of all this is the technology exists right now. So to the extent that there was ever this, oh, somebody's going to be stigmatized, well, that, that's not a valid concern anymore. But the larger point is at what point in time, seriously, do we end up saying enough is enough? Switching gears. I, I've been saying this before. I uh, and we've talked about this on on multiple occasions. Another story in the Journal Sentinel caught my attention. Wisconsin needs more nurses at the best of time. As COVID surges again, hospitals are being desperate and are getting desperate. And the story goes on to talk about, you know, how um, lots of nurses are retiring. Hospitals are offering $15,000 hiring bonuses um, that the experience and the costs are going up. M- nurses are taking temporary jobs as opposed to these full-time jobs and You've got the pressures that come from the Delta variant, all of which are are great points, which again, underscores the question that I have been asking repeatedly, which is what is going to happen a couple months from now when all these vaccine mandates kick in? It sounds great, hey, everybody at the hospital has to be vaccinated, but if you've got 10 or 15% of say your skilled nursing force, and I don't think those numbers are out of line, that have decided for whatever reasons they're not going to get vaccinated. Um, maybe these are people eligible for retirement who would work a few years, but, you know, they're, they're just ready to go. They're burned out from other things. I mean, what, what is going to happen? And where are the nurses going to come from? It's not that I think, you know, vaccinations are a bad thing. I, I don't. And I certainly don't have an issue with people in the health field being vaccinated. I'm just not sure that the hospitals have thought through this process. Because, again, you know, if all of a sudden you lose 10 or 15 percent of your skilled nursing force and you lose another 15 or 20 percent of the support people, the people that, you know, do the cleaning, that do the cooking, all that type of stuff, you know, what's that going to do to hospitals? And my answer is it's not going to help them. You're
1: listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: President Biden is supposed to speak in about 10 minutes. We will bring you his remarks um it, it, historically, at least over the course of the last several weeks, the that date is that time has been sort of flexible, and uh, the president's eh, it's not uncommon. Presidents kind of come out and they speak when they choose to speak. But one forty-five is the time we are looking at. Uh, Tom Barrett, of course, is on his way out as the mayor of Milwaukee. We don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, my guess: the Senate has not been in a hurry to confirm ambassadors, but in this particular situation, it, it's it's not a controversial appointment. So. My guess is, um, there'll be the interview process. I wouldn't be surprised to see Barrett go on by the end of the year. I think that's probably a a realistic idea. And then what's going to happen is you're going to have, uh, again, Cavalier-Johnson It will become the interim mayor, but there there will be an, an election. And uh, because, as I was saying earlier, in, in Milwaukee, we, we do not switch mayors very often. This is sort of a once-in-a-generation opportunity. And so my, my guess is there's going to be 10 or 15 people who run. My guess is half the common council will run. You will have members of the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors. You will have other people from the community who will run, I mean, it will, in fact, be a free-for-all. And and I don't know who the the favorite's going to be. Um, Steve Scafidi said, well, do you think that uh, the Common Council president is going to be the favorite? I said, no, I I just, I I don't. I think it's, it is just a complete and total free-for-all. But the one thing that I think is going to be important is whoever it is that gets into this race needs to have an agenda that deals with the spiraling crime problem. It You can say what you want about Tom Barrett, but I, I think he's been completely and totally devoid of ideas when it comes to dealing with out-of-control crime. And look, the, the mayor has, you know, after there's, you know, people killed, the mayor shows up at the press conferences and appropriately denounces them, but nothing changes. And by this way, I can make the same argument about many, many members of the political class in the city of Milwaukee. People come out after their shootings and they give it lip service or whatever and they say things need to change and and nothing happens because collectively they're not willing to do anything. They're not willing to stand up to members of their community who are concerned, for example, that, gee, police are arresting too many of this type of person or that type of person when the fact is we need the police to be arresting criminals. The elected officials are reluctant to call out the DA's office when they just give away cases. They're unwilling to call out um, judges who give away cases and send people back out on the streets to steal cars over and over again and all the while this happens crime continues to get out of control and frankly makes a community unlivable I don't think this is a chicken-and-the-egg thing like what came first you know crime or, or, or poor economic conditions the truth is that if you are a business thinking about locating in an area any area one of the things you look at is livability Gee, and if you're looking at a place, an area, a neighborhood that is nothing but a war zone, you're not going to invest your money in putting you know, a grocery store there. You're just not going to do it. If your patrons are going to get shot at or robbed, and if your employees are going to get shot at and robbed, you're going to find some other place to go and make the investment. And so whoever emerges from the the mess that is going to be the uh, effort to try to replace Tom Barrett, I I think it's got to be somebody that has an honest talk about crime. Now, what got me started on this is these numbers, they just, they're just they staggeringly bad. Here's from just last night on the mean streets of Milwaukee. Milwaukee police are investigating two separate shooting incidents that happened Monday night. Now, last Friday, you had a 17 and an 18-year-old that were shot in two separate circumstances, um, and I don't think it even made the paper. I, I could be wrong, but I don't think it even made the newspaper. We've now gotten to this point that you've got teenagers getting gunned down at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on 40th and Silver Spring, and it doesn't even make the newspaper. And I think it made, like, one TV station. The first shooting yesterday happened around 8.35 p.m. near 12th and Vine. The victims, a 17-year-old girl and an 18-year-old man, sustained non-life-threatening injuries. The second shooting, 9.35 last night near 24th Place in Capitol Drive... Once again, not that far from where I'm sitting now. The victim, a 24-year-old Milwaukee man, was located. Um, They found him suffering from serious gunshot wounds, taken to a local hospital, pronounced dead as a result of the injuries. So the the numbers, the beat just goes on and on and on. I'm looking at the... Crime statistics in the Milwaukee Police Department publishes up to date crime statistics. I don't know if this includes the homicide yesterday, but last year in 2020, an all time record, 190 homicides. This year, we already have a hundred, no, I'm sorry, 2020 at this time, 119. This year we have 118, but again, I don't think that includes the one from last night. So we are essentially, even with our all-time record number of homicides, it's not getting any better. And in fact, in many situations, it's getting worse. Robbery, all-time high last year. This same time, same date last year, 1,183. Um, now we're at 1327. That's up. Aggravated assault. Year to date. And again, last year was like an all-time record for these things. Aggravated assault. Same time last year. 4,600. This year, 5,200. Um, theft, larceny. This time last year, 5,000. This time this year, 6,500. Do you see the pattern? It is going through the roof. Motor vehicle theft. We've talked about this before. This time last year. 2,463. This year, 6,977. It's almost triple. It's almost triple and again, we're, we, we hear no conversations about this other than, gee, we think Kia needs to make it tougher to steal the cars. Well, OK, fine. But that's that's putting a Band-Aid on a wound that needs 25 stitches. We've got to get crime under control. Unfortunately, I think Tom Barrett has been completely and totally overwhelmed by this. Members of the Common Council don't apparently have any idea. I hope whoever emerges as the front runner to replace Barrett really comes out with an agreement. Aggressive anti-crime agenda designed to stop this because the community is never going to be livable until you get a handle on this and all the indicators are it's moving in the wrong direction this is jeff wagner on wgmj this week's sponsor for the Wagner Home Improvement Showcase is its presenting sponsor, Great Midwest Bank. Thanks again to Great Midwest Bank for being such great partners. Great Midwest Bank, you're simply local, equal housing, home, renovation, lender. Uh, I don't think I have mentioned this, at least not recently, but we're taking the program on the road. Thursday and Friday is the start of Summerfest. And yes, as Don Smiley corrected me last time we spoke on the air, it is still summer. I know, you know, after, once we get to September and all, we start thinking about fall, but technically it is still summer. And Summerfest this year is, is unlike any year. First of all, they've gone away from their format of, of opening on a Wednesday running through that first Sunday, taking the Monday off, and then coming back and going Tuesday through Sunday. That's not how Summerfest works this year. Instead, Summerfest runs Thursday, Friday, and Saturday for three weeks. So it's a nine-day festival, not an 11 or 12-day festival, and it's just Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So we will be broadcasting live. I'm going to be down there Thursday and Friday. So if you're on the grounds, stop off and say hi. Matter of fact, then uh, next week I'm scheduled to be on a listener trip to, to France. Then I'll be back for the last week of um, Summerfest as well. So if you happen to be on the grounds, come on in and say hello. Um, it looks, I, I think it's going to be successful. Keep in mind that for Summerfest this year, you are, to get into the grounds, going to have to prove that you either have been vaccinated or have a a negative test for COVID within I think it's like 72 hours and they have all the details up on the website. Uh, I went to see a show on the Summerfest grounds a couple weeks ago and and I will tell you I I think they did a very very good job of getting people in. People either were carrying their vaccination cards or in, in my case for example I had my vaccination card a picture of it on my phone and they took it and people moved through. So I think it's going to be a different sort of summer fest this year, but I think it is in fact going to be successful. My guess is this may be the model for summer fests moving forward. Um, nothing is written in stone, but my guess is what you're going to see is that, um, I think they're going to give lots of consideration to instead of the, again, Wednesday through the following Sunday model, I think they're going to look long and hard at just like the three-weekend model. That would kind of be my guess, again, is they try to, like, maximize attendance. And I know that there are some people who, you know, like to go down, like on those Tuesday things, but, you know, Tuesdays and the Sundays tend to be some of the lower attendance days because, you know, it, it just... We are a weekend town. Lots of communities are weekend towns. But, you know, in Milwaukee, if you talk to people that put on promotions or put on events, you know, the the Thursday and Friday and Saturday night attendance tends to be greater than the Sundays and the Mondays and the Tuesdays and even the Wednesdays because people have to get up and go to work the next day. But Summerfest kicks off. On Thursday, we will be broadcasting live from Summerfest. So, like I say, if you're in the area, stop off and say hi. Okay, let me take another quick break. Again, President Biden was supposed to address the nation about five minutes ago. We're we're waiting for the president's remarks. We will bring them to you once he starts. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner, W I at WTMJ. Uh, we are still awaiting the president. Uh, it appears that it's going to be delayed. Our guess is at least probably another ten minutes. The press pool has not been called to assemble yet so um, we'll, we'll we'll bring you his remarks about Afghanistan when he uh, when he begins i right before the break i was kind of distracted i was looking at the wisn channel 12 website I, I i swear i i swear there are just there there are things that i just do not i do not understand how this stuff happens um you might have heard the story. I think it was reported about how there was a 12-year-old boy who was was killed the the other day. Well well here's the story the way Channel 12 is reporting it. 54-year-old Milwaukee man has been charged with killing his 12-year-old grandson. Andres Martina is charged with first-degree intentional homicide, physical abuse of a child, repeated acts causing death, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um possession of a firearm by a felon. Andre Smith and his younger brother slept over at their grandparents' grandfather's house on 46th and Hampton on Saturday night. The boys' grandmother, who is their legal guardian, got a phone call Monday morning, got a phone call Sunday morning and told her daughter and told her daughter, Nia Moore and Moore's boyfriend, Anthony Anderson, to go get the boys immediately, according to the criminal complaint. Then they arrived at the home. The eight-year-old answered the door and ran out immediately when Anderson went inside the home this would be the boyfriend of the mother of the children I think when Anderson went inside the home he saw Andre's body covered in blood they rushed the boy to st. Joseph's Hospital once he was stabilized he was taken to children's where he was later pronounced dead according to the complaint police interviewed the boys great-grandmother who lived at the home with Martina She said early Sunday she heard yelling. She said she looked up and saw Martina, that would be the grandfather, striking Andre with a hammer all over his body, including the head and back. Who hits a 12 year old with a hammer? He then put the hammer down and continued to beat the boy with her cane, the great grandmother said. According to the criminal complaint, the eight-year-old told police that his grandfather, the defendant, was angry about missing money and beat the boys. The boys said the defendant struck them with a, the boy said the defendant struck them with a mallet, a sledgehammer, a coat rack, and then a cane. Milwaukee County Medical Examiner Brian Peterson found during the autopsy that Andre's skull was severely fractured, no kidding, consistent with multiple blunt force blows to his head. He also suffered a severe injury to the brain. Uh, Martina told police, believed the entire incident lasted from 3 a.m. until well after 8 a.m. I, 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 you, just, you don't even know what to say about this. So... I mean, long story short, you've got a 54 year old guy who is the grandfather of, of these kids. The grandmother has legal custody. The kids are over at the house. The grandfather, at least allegedly, thinks the kids stole some money and proceeds, at least according to this criminal complaint, if I'm getting it right, for the better part of like three or four or five hours to beat the hell out of these kids with, with a hammer. A, a sledgehammer, a a cane, a coat rack, um, a mallet. I, I, you just you just almost don't know how to describe something you know like this. I mean, who takes a hammer and starts wailing on an eight year old and a twelve year old? I just you just kind of throw up your hands and say, "Man, I, I mean, you you want to talk about dysfunctional? Well, this is this is in fact the height of dysfunction and." And you just kind of throw up your hands and say, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Twelve-year-old is dead. My guess is the 54-year-old grandfather is, if he's convicted, going to go to prison for the rest of his life, where he certainly belongs with doing this. But, you know, who beats kids with hammers, for goodness sakes? Um, again, we're awaiting President Biden. We're still not even getting the two-minute warning, but we will bring you his remarks. Something I that if you are of a certain age, you, you may be able to relate to. Um, there were... In the 60s, there were three prominent assassinations of political social figures, and, and there were there were more, but the, these are three. 19, November of 1963, the uh, assassination of President John Kennedy. Following that, you had the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in uh, 1968, I believe, in spring, and then in uh, later on in 1968 you had the assassination of Robert F Kennedy who was John Kennedy's younger brother at the time he was a senator from New York he was running for president and many people thought that he was um, he would be the Democratic nominee for president it was kind of a a late starting campaign but he was picking up some sort of momentum don't know how it would have turned out because in Los Angeles after winning the California primary, he was assassinated by um, an assassin named Sirhan Sirhan. Sirhan Sirhan was originally sentenced to death, got the death penalty. Well, what happened was in 1972, California California suspended the death penalty. Um, so Sirhan Sirhan's sentence was converted from a sentence of death to life imprisonment. I bring this up because the parole board in California has now recommended that Sirhan Sirhan be released on parole. Um, he, he still doesn't take responsibility, I guess, for, for shooting Senator Kennedy at at the time, but they have really recommended, recommended he be released on parole. Now, ultimately it's going to be up to the governor, whoever that governor might be. There's a recall going on in California as to whether or not he should be released. But I mean, this is one of those situations. Uh, Regardless of how you feel about the death penalty, and I continue to be a proponent for it, I mean, if if you're not going to take somebody who's been sentenced to death and instead you're going to convert it to a life sentence, how you can release that person is absolutely beyond me. But that is precisely what it appears that California is going to do if the governor signs off on the recommendation of the parole board. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: Melissa, I am the bringer of bad tidings for you. I've got bad news for you. Okay, I'm ready. All right, the KISS concert that was scheduled for Sunday at Mm -hmm. American Family Amphitheater? Yeah. Off. No KISS. It's canceled. It is canceled, yeah. for, For people, I mean... Summerfest, as I was saying earlier, is Thursday, Friday, Saturday over the next three weekends. But they do have a couple standalone concerts that are built in there. And Kiss was supposed to be playing Sunday night, September fifth, and they've just announced that uh, both Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons have both tested positive oh, for COVID nineteen. No.
0: You know, both and, of them, and that is an amazing show. Anybody that hasn't seen Kiss,
2: I know you're a Kiss fan. All the bells and whistles.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I do not apologize. No, I, I know. say I'm a Kiss fan. I'm a Ki- I'm a fan of their their show, right? Well, that makes you kiss. I, I, I guess so. I mean, I don't own any of the albums or anything like that, but the show. Is absolutely fabulous. Uh,
2: you don't. You don't have to be defensive about yeah, it. I, yeah. I, I knew. I know you like. <laughs> I, I know you liked it. Yeah. Number one fan, Melissa. Just admit it. That, that's it. But, uh, but um, actually, there there was a. I forget what channel it was on. There was a two part documentary. It might have been on Vice or something. I forget. Uh, on the making of Kiss and the whole history of the band. Mm-hmm. It was really kind of interesting to watch where these guys came from and stuff. But in any event, um, they've they've they're back out on the road and they were doing this you know tour and they had all and it's typically what happens with big bands. You know, it's like. Okay, one night we're in one city, and then two nights later we're in another. And uh, since so the KISS frontman, Paul Stanley tested positive Thursday, forcing the band to postpone a string of shows over subsequent days, beginning with a concert in Pennsylvania that was canceled. So what they, they're, they're hoping to resume the tour September 9th in California. But... Um, the uh, the Summerfest show, yeah. and again, it's not part of Summerfest, but the, the right, st- right, during right. the Summerfest mm-hmm. run, um, it's off. So whatever you you, you know you feel That's sorry. A bomber, for, yeah. Well, you feel sorry for these venues that are trying to get this to happen, but you know this stuff is going to happen just more frequently. Unfortunately,
0: it's almost like you have to book them and then make sure you have a plan B and C backup, backup in case these people you know end up not coming.
2: Right. I saw. I just. I Kid Rock, who was not scheduled to be. I just uh, he um, he canceled a whole bunch of his concerts because uh, and I'm I am a kid rock fan because one of the members of his band came down with COVID and oh, so like they're God. they're off the road. So you know that this is going to be going on. But no kiss on Sunday. Oh no
0: kiss. Okay. Sorry. All right, we'll live.
2: All right. Nick Van Wagen doing our sports today. Okay, so let let me walk through this. Of course <clears throat> Hurricane Ida hits last week, uh caused all sorts of damage to New Orleans, although as I'm going to talk about in just a couple of minutes, nothing like Katrina, which shows that all this money, the 14 billion dollars that they put in, the levees held, the pumping stations continued to work. All those problems, you know, did not occur, which is good. But the bottom line is still no residential power to most of the city. Uh, and that's going to be the case for the foreseeable future. Plus what's going to be happening is over the next few weeks there's going to be this cleanup thing. So the Packers supposed to open the season in New Orleans at the Superdome. Where it is, that's not going to happen.
4: Yeah, September 12th, Sunday, September 12th. That's next Sunday. We're hearing rumors that Jerry Jones has been in talks with the NFL on hosting it at AT&T Stadium. Some people have come out and said there's a concert there that week, so that might get in the way of that. Sean Payton has said they are not going to be in New Orleans for the first month of the season. They're going to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. They might practice at SMU. They might practice at TCU. So things are still
2: up in the air. No idea where that game is going to be played, but it will not be played in New Orleans. Okay, so the the Cowboys Stadium, which is AT&T, that's booked for a a concert. Maybe not on that Sunday, but it's it's booked for a concert. Earlier that
4: week, perhaps the night
2: before, I believe. Houston. Um, Houston's playing at home. The so, Texans are
4: home, so Houston is not going to be an
2: option. So then you would think that you could maybe come to Louisiana again, and there, there you've got the LSU Stadium and things like that, um, but... But LSU got hit hard. I mean, they, you wonder how they're going to be able to play games in New Orleans, Give in, in Louisiana, that whole southern area that was kind of devastated by the hurricane. Yeah, and if you
4: recall back when Katrina happened, I believe the Saints either practiced or played at Tulane's University for a little right. bit. They played in Baton Rouge. Who knows what kind of shape those stadiums are in. But this game needs to be played somewhere on Sunday, September 12th, and it's not going to be
2: in New well, Orleans. matter of fact, I saw Tulane, I think, sent all their students home. They closed their campus because of this. Well, I guess that that's the question um is it possible they they, they give a buy is it possible they just put this this game off i doubt it and it is also not possible that this game is played at lambeau field sean
4: <laughs> payton right. has made himself clear on that there's 30 other stadiums he'll choose from and lambeau will not be
2: one of them interesting but again it's it's one of those other things and and of course r- regardless of what happens in and the huge tragedy in, in in new orleans and so we don't want to make light of it but That's a very difficult place to play, you know, extremely loud, things like that. Not having to play a game in the Superdome, you would think would be, and it's way down the list, I understand, of the big picture issues there, but you would think that that would be a benefit to the Packers because wherever they go it's not going to be as packed, it's not going to be as loud as as the Superdome would have been.
4: Well, and we know there's Packer fans everywhere, especially if you play that game in Dallas, you're going to hear a lot of Packer fans. And if you recall last season, Sunday Night Football, the Packers played the Saints in an empty Superdome and I think they benefited from that. They did not have the usual crowd noise at the Superdome and they ended up winning that game. So this was going to be a little bit different this time around. The fans would be back, they'd be loud, it'd be week one of the NFL season. So I think the Pack- this is in the Packers'
2: favor. I do believe that. How soon do they have to make i would assume okay this is we're talking about a week from sunday so they still have you know 10 or 11 days but i i would imagine with all the travel preparations and and arranging for tickets this this isn't this is something that you got to figure out in the next day or so right yeah the nfl is going to want to sell tickets for this thing so they are under the gun
4: like i said a few hours ago reports were that jerry jones was in talks with the nfl but some people seem
2: to think that they won't be able to host it they're going to want to figure this out before the weekend, that's for sure. Mm. Well, stay tuned. We'll bring you the latest on that. Where will We know the Packers will be opening the season. We presume it's going to be against the New Orleans Saints, but it will not be in New Orleans. Uh, stay tuned. All right, let's take a quick break. Again, we are waiting President Biden's remarks. Um, he was supposed to start about a half hour ago. Um, once he starts, we will bring them to you in their entirety. This is Jeff Wagner.
1: Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs>
2: So very glad to have you with us. As I mentioned, we're awaiting President Biden's remarks on the um, departure of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. We have talked about it extensively. If you haven't been following the news, President Biden's approval rating just he's he's taken a huge hit with regard to his handling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I understand some people believe that this couldn't have been handled. This would have been inevitable. However, it happened. Um, I don't I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I, w- I want to double back while we're waiting for the president's remarks and just offer a couple comments on, on, on what, what went on with Hurricane Ida in New Orleans and one of the, the sort of lessons. I am old enough to remember 16 years ago to the day when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. And just to kind of refresh your recollection, Hurricane Katrina was a hurricane of about the same sort of power and, and scope as Hurricane Ida. Well what happened in Hurricane Katrina 16 years ago is first of all the levees that protect uh New Orleans and the surrounding areas the the levees broke. Also what happened is there are huge pumping stations in New Orleans and the the pumps we got submerged when the levees broke, the pumps failed. And so there was no way of getting the water out. And that's why you had the catastrophic damage, you know, that occurred and the incredible loss of life. Now, without depreciating in any way, shape or form, what happened last weekend, the, the loss of life, I, I think the last report I saw was, was maybe four people had passed away. And and that's that's tragic. But but Katrina was a lot worse. Lots, lots worse. And I think it's it's fair to kind of ask why. And there's a real interesting piece in the um, Wall Street Journal today that kind of makes a point that I've sort of been hinting at before. One of the things that we did after Katrina is we realized that when it comes to Mother Nature, there are always going to be these sort of catastrophic things i understand that there's people out there who jump on the climate change bandwagon and things like this but the truth is i was just reading a book about the development of key west i mean in the 1930s there was this like devastating hurricane that that hit the, the east coast of florida and just decimated um decimated key west and the uh, the miami area and all this sort of thing and and so there there's always going to be the, these hurricanes And, you know, you can argue are they going to be increasing in frequency because of climate change or whatever. But, but the truth is they're always going to be happening. So one of the things that we need to do is we need to figure out ways to be prepared and you need to be proactive. So to that extent, um, over the course of the last, well, 15 years, what's happened is there's been, uh, over 14 billion dollars um, I, spent by both the feds and the state of Louisiana into protecting New Orleans and, and that area. They, they did it by bolstering the flood walls bolstering the levees, bolstering the the drainage systems. The U.S. Corps of Army Engineers reinforced the pumping stations to withstand 205 mile-per-hour winds and established redundant power systems to operate Is if the electric grid fails like it did over the weekend. So the bottom line is, the levees held, and the, the pumping stations continued to work. And as a result, you did not have that widespread devastation. We we were able to make the improvements to stop the horrendous stuff that happened during Katrina. Now it, it's not to say that there aren't uh, additional problems that are there. You had, I think there were four thirteen or 14 different electrical plants, all of which supply power to new Orleans and that general area. Um, all of them ended up going offline because of the flooding, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one of the reasons why so many people are without power because First of all, they've got to get the power plants back online and then you start dealing with the okay, the the individual, you know, wires and that that take it to people's houses. But the first problem was there there wasn't any power that was being generated. Then you have to figure out, okay, we've got all these power lines down, so it's going to be a long process. And and clearly there's still more to do when it comes to the power grid. But one of the things that we were able to do and learn from Katrina was the fact that you know, we, we, build up the levees. Let's do everything we can to prevent this. You see this, you know, in places like Florida as well, where, you know, now they're, they're starting the building codes have changed. So things are more resistant to the high winds. There's always going to be these things, but I, I bring this up because there, there's some people who think what we need to do is be, because the, the earth is becoming more volatile. What we need to do is we need to concentrate all these resources and getting us away from fossil fuels and things of the like. My my response is, no, we need to do what we've been doing over the course of the last couple uh, several years. What we need to do is build an infrastructure that can withstand the worst of these hurricanes. And we've got the technology and we've got the infrastructure that can do it. We just have to make the commitment. But what we did in New Orleans, and that is the federal government and that is the state, what was done over the course of the last 15 years essentially allowed that city to come through a monster hurricane Damaged, no question about it. But without the devastation that was caused by Katrina, and, and maybe that's that's kind of the lesson that, that's out there. You know, they're fighting these wildfires in California that are running out of control. Well, maybe, maybe instead of worrying as much about cutting carbon emissions, what we should be doing is is spending the money to do whatever we need to do with forestry burying power lines, all those different types of things to ensure that if fires break out, they don't have the devastating consequences that they have. And I'm, I'm afraid in our effort to deal with climate change and things like that, we're moving away from what I think really is the major answer, at least at this point in time in in modern times, which is, okay, let's figure out what we can do knowing that there's going to be hurricanes, knowing that there's going to be fires. Let's figure out what we can do in order to minimize the damage that they occur when they happen. And that's a good example of what went on in New Orleans. Again, without in any way, shape, or form downplaying the the problems that it has and all the loss of, of property and things like that, This could have been Katrina, but it wasn't because we learned from Katrina. Back with more in just a minute. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. My favorite text of the day. Jeff, New Orleans adapts their infrastructure to handle a near Category 5 hurricane, and Milwaukee's MMSD is still dumping waste into Lake Michigan after heavy rains. Yeah, there is an irony to that. Okay, we are getting the under-two-minute warning. Melissa Barkley, President uh, Biden, getting ready to talk about Afghanistan. We've been waiting for about 45 minutes. He's going to start any moment. We understand
0: Yes, we will take that coverage live once he starts speaking. Yeah, President Joe Biden planning to address the nation about Afghanistan at some point this afternoon. Again, in a couple of minutes, we are waiting on that. He faces a lot of tough questions about his decision to withdraw from the final, the final U.S. troops there, ending the longest war in American history, Jeff
2: they told us 145 mm-hmm. so we've been kind of waiting so for we've the been president waiting, we yep. got the 2 minute warning about 4 minutes ago or so so it's all right we kind of like have to on this yeah, stuff that dance. well it well that that's that's all that's all well and good um i don't know if the president's going to be taking any questions or not or whether this is just going to be an an address um interestingly enough this is one of the situations where the 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 media i think in general has been more aggressive, I would say, with President Biden than a- at any time in his presidency with regard to um, a question. So, all right, we're looking at the uh, president is walking up to the podium now. It's ended. Here's the president.
3: 20 years of war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history. We completed one of the biggest airlifts in history with more than 120,000 people evacuated to safety. That number is more than double what most experts thought were possible. No nation, no nation has ever done anything like it in all of history. The only the United States had the capacity and the will and the ability to do it, and we did it today. The extraordinary success of this mission was due to the incredible skill, bravery, and selfless courage of the United States military and our diplomats and intelligence professionals. For weeks, they risked their lives to get American citizens, Afghans who helped us, citizens of our allies and partners and others on board planes and out of the country. And they did it facing a crush of enormous crowds seeking to leave the country. And they did it knowing ISIS-K terrorists, sworn enemies of the Taliban were lurking in the midst of those crowds and still the women and men of the United States military, our diplomatic corps, and intelligence professionals did their job and did it well, risking their lives, not for professional gains, but to serve others, not in a mission of war, but in a mission of mercy. Twenty service members were wounded in the service of this mission. Thirteen heroes gave their lives. I was just at Dover Air Force Base for the dignified transfer. We owe them and their families a debt of gratitude we can never repay, but we should never, ever, ever forget. In April, I made a decision to end this war. As part of that decision, we set the date of August 31st for American troops to withdraw. The assumption was that more than 300,000 Afghan national security forces that we had trained over the past two decades and equipped would be a strong adversary in their civil wars with the Taliban. That assumption that the Afghan government would be able to hold on for a period of time beyond military drawdown turned out not to be accurate. But I still instructed our national security team to prepare for every eventuality, even that one. And that's what we did. So we were ready when the Afghan security forces, after two decades of fighting for their country and losing thousands of their own, did not hold on as long as anyone expected. We were ready when they and the people of Afghanistan watched their own government collapse and the president flee amid the corruption and malfeasance, handing over the country to their enemy, the Taliban, and significantly increasing the risk to U.S. personnel and our allies. As a result, to safely extract American citizens before August 31st, as well as embassy personnel, allies and partners, and those Afghans who had worked with us and fought alongside of us for 20 years, I had authorized 6,000 troops, American troops, to Kabul to help secure the airport. As General McKenzie said, this is the way the mission was designed. It was designed to operate under severe stress and attack. And that's what it did. Since March, we reached out 19 times to Americans in Afghanistan with multiple warnings and offers to help them leave Afghanistan all the way back as far as March. After we started the evacuation 17 days ago, we did initial outreach and analysis and identified around 5,000 Americans who had decided earlier to stay in Afghanistan but now wanted to leave. Our Operation Allied Rescue ended up getting more than 5,500 Americans out. We got out thousands of citizens and diplomats from those countries that went into Afghanistan with us to get bin Laden. We got out locally employed staff in the United States Embassy and their families, totaling roughly 2,500 people. We got thousands of Afghan translators and interpreters and others who supported the United States out as well. Now we believe that about 100 to 200 Americans remain in Afghanistan with some intention to leave, most of those who remain are dual citizens, long-time residents who had earlier decided to stay because of their family roots in Afghanistan. The bottom line: 90% of Americans in Afghanistan who wanted to leave were able to leave. And for those remaining Americans, there is no deadline. We remain committed to get them out if they want to come out. Secretary of State Blinken is leading the continued diplomatic efforts to ensure safe passage for any American, Afghan partner, or foreign national who wants to leave Afghanistan. In fact, just yesterday, the United Nations Security Council passed a resolution that sent a clear message What the international community expects the Taliban to deliver on moving forward, notably freedom of travel, freedom to leave. And together, we are joined by over 100 countries that are determined to make sure the Taliban upholds those commitments. It will include ongoing efforts in Afghanistan to reopen the airport, as well as overland routes, allowing for continued departure those who want to leave and deliver humanitarian assistance to the people of Afghanistan. The Taliban has made public commitments broadcast on television and radio across Afghanistan on safe passage for anyone wanting to leave, including those who worked alongside Americans. We don't take them by their word alone, but by their actions. And we have leverage to make sure those commitments are met. Let me be clear, leaving August the 31st is not due to an arbitrary deadline. It was designed to save American lives. My predecessor, the former president, signed an agreement with the Taliban to remove U.S. troops by May the 1st, just months after I was inaugurated. It included no requirement that Taliban work out a cooperative government arrangement, with the Afghan government. But it did authorize the release of 5,000 prisoners last year, including some of the Taliban's top war commanders, among those who just took control of Afghanistan. And by the time I came to office, the Taliban was in its strongest military position since 2001, controlling or contesting nearly half of the country The previous administration's agreement said that if we stuck to the May 1st deadline that they had signed on to leave by, the Taliban wouldn't attack any American forces. But if we stayed, all bets were off. So we were left with a simple decision. Either follow through on the commitment made by the last administration and leave Afghanistan, or say we weren't leaving and commit another tens of thousands more troops going back to war. That was the choice, the real choice, between leaving or escalating. I was not going to extend this forever war, and I was not extending a forever exit. The decision to end the military lift operations at Kabul Airport was based on the unanimous recommendation of my civilian and military advisors, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and all the service chiefs and the commanders in the field. Their recommendation was that the safest way to secure the passage of the remaining Americans and others out of the country was not to continue with 6,000 troops on the ground in harm's way in Kabul, but rather to get them out through non-military means. In the 17 days that we operated in Kabul after the Taliban seized power, we engaged in an around-the-clock effort to provide every American the opportunity to leave. Our State Department was working 24-7, contacting and talking, and in some cases, walking Americans into the airport. Again. More than 5,500 Americans were airlifted out. And for those who remain, we will make arrangements to get them out if they so choose. As for the Afghans, we and our partners have airlifted 100,000 of them. No country in history has done more to airlift out the residents of another country than we have done. we will continue work to help more people leave the country who are at risk. And we're far from done. For now, I urge all Americans to join me in grateful prayer for our troops and diplomats and intelligence officers who carried out this mission of mercy in Kabul and a tremendous risk with such unparalleled results. An, air, an airlift that evacuated tens of thousands. To a network of volunteers and veterans who helped identify those needing evacuation, guide them to the airport, and provide them for their support along the way. We're going to continue to need their help. We need your help, and I'm looking forward to meeting with you. And to everyone who is now offering or who will offer to welcome Afghan allies to their homes around the world, including in America. We thank you. I take responsibility for the decision. Now, some say we should have started mass evacuations sooner. And couldn't this have have been done in a more orderly manner? I respectfully disagree. Imagine if we'd begun evacuations in June or July, bringing in thousands of American troops and evacuating more than 120,000 people in the middle of a civil war. There still would have been a rush to the airport, a breakdown of confidence and control of the government. And it still would have been very difficult and dangerous mission. The bottom line is there is no evacuation evacuation from the end of a war. That you can run without the kinds of complexities challenges threats we faced none there are those who would say we should have stayed indefinitely for years on end they asked why don't we just keep doing what we were doing why do we have to change anything the fact is everything had changed my predecessor had made a deal with the taliban When I came into office, we faced a deadline, May 1. The Taliban onslaught was coming. We faced one of two choices. Follow the agreement of the previous administration and extend it to have or extend to have more time for people to get out. Or send in thousands of more troops and escalate the war to those Asking for a third decade of war in Afghanistan, I ask, what is the vital national interest? In my view, we only have one. To make sure Afghanistan can never be used again to launch an attack on our homeland. Remember why we went to Afghanistan in the first place? Because we were attacked by Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda on September 11th, 2008 thousand and one and they were based in Afghanistan we delivered justice to bin Laden on May 2nd 2011 over a decade ago al Qaeda was decimated I respectfully suggest you ask yourself this question if we'd been attacked on September 11 2001 from Yemen instead of Afghanistan, would we have ever gone to war in Afghanistan, even though the Taliban controlled Afghanistan in the year 2001? I believe the honest answer is no. That's because we had no vital interest in Afghanistan other than to prevent an attack on America's homeland and our friends. And that's true today. We succeeded in what we set out to do in Afghanistan over a decade ago. Then we stayed for another decade. It was time to end this war. This is a new world. The terror threat has metastasized across the world, well beyond Afghanistan. We face threats from al-Shabaab in Somalia, al-Qaeda affiliates in Syria and the Arabian Peninsula, and ISIS attempting to create a caliphate in Syria and Iraq and establishing affiliates across Africa and Asia. The fundamental obligation of a president, in my opinion, is to defend and protect America. Not against threats of 2001, but against the threats of 2021 and tomorrow. That is the guiding principle behind my decisions about Afghanistan. Afghanistan. I simply do not believe that the safety and security of America is enhanced by continuing to deploy thousands of American troops and spending billions of dollars a year in Afghanistan. But I also know that the threat from terrorism continues in its pernicious and evil nature. But it's changed, expanded to other countries. Our strategy has to change, too, We will maintain the fight against terrorists in Afghanistan and other countries. We just don't need to fight a ground war to do it. We have what's called over the horizon capabilities, which means we can strike terrorists and targets without American boots on the ground or very few if needed. We've shown that capacity just in the last week. We struck ISIS-K remotely days after they murdered 13 of our service members and dozens of innocent Afghans. And to ISIS-K, we are not done with you yet. As Commander-in-Chief, I firmly believe the best path to guard our safety and our security lies in a tough, unforgiving, targeted, precise strategy that goes after terror where it is today, not where it was two decades ago. That's what's in our national interest. And here's a critical thing to understand. The world is changing. We're engaged in a serious competition with China. We're dealing with the challenges on multiple fronts with Russia. We're confronted with cyber attacks and nuclear proliferation. We have to shore up America's competitiveness to meet these new challenges in the competition for the 21st century. And we could do both. Fight terrorism and take on new threats that are here now and will continue to be here in the future. And there's nothing China or Russia would rather have, would want more, in this competition in the United States to be bogged down another decade in Afghanistan. As we turn the page on the foreign policy that has guided our, nas- our nation the last two decades, we've got to learn from our mistakes. To me, there are two that are paramount. First, we must set missions with clear, achievable goals not ones we'll never reach. And second, we must stay clearly focused on the fundamental national security interest of the United States of America. This decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. We saw a mission of counterterrorism in Afghanistan, getting the terrorists and stopping attacks, morph into a counterinsurgency, nation building, trying to create a democratic, cohesive, and united Afghanistan—something that has never been done over many centuries of Afghan's history. Moving on from that mindset. And those kind of large-scale troop deployments will make us stronger and more effective and safer at home. And for anyone who gets the wrong idea, let me say it clearly. To those who wish America harm, to those who engage in terrorism against us or our allies, know this. The United States will never rest. We will not forgive. We will not forget We'll hunt you down to the ends of the earth and we will you will pay the ultimate price. Let me be clear. We'll continue to support the Afghan people through diplomacy, international influence and humanitarian aid. We'll continue to push for regional diplomacy engagement to prevent violence and instability. We'll continue to speak out for the basic rights of the Afghan people, especially women and girls, as we speak out for women and girls all around the globe. And I've been clear that human rights will be the center of our foreign policy. But the way to do that is not through endless military deployments, but through diplomacy, economic tools, and rallying the rest of the world for support. My fellow Americans... The war in Afghanistan is now over. I'm the fourth president who has faced the issue of whether and when to end this war. When I was running for president, I made a commitment to the American people that I would end this war. Today, I've honored that commitment. It was time to be honest with the American people again. We no longer had a clear purpose in an open-ended mission in Afghanistan. After 20 years of war in Afghanistan, I refused to send another generation of America's sons and daughters to fight a war that should have ended long ago. After more than $2 trillion spent in Afghanistan, the cost that researchers at Brown University estimated would be over 3 hundred million dollars a day for twenty years in afghanistan for two decades. yes the american people hear this three hundred million dollars a day for two decades. you take the number of one trillion as many say that's still one hundred and fifty million dollars a day for two decades. What have we lost as a consequence in terms of opportunities? I refuse to continue a war that was no longer in the service of the vital national interest of our people, and most of all, after 800,000 Americans serving in Afghanistan, I've traveled that whole country—brave and honorable service. After 20,744 American servicemen and women injured and the loss of 2,461 American personnel, including 13 lives, lost just this week, I refuse to open another decade of warfare in Afghanistan. We've been a nation too long at war. If you're 20 years old today, you've never known an America at peace. So when I hear that we could have, should have, Continued the so-called low-grade effort in Afghanistan, at low risk to our service members, at low cost. I don't think enough people understand how much we've asked of the 1% of this country who put that uniform on, willing to put their lives on the line in defense of our nation. Maybe it's because my deceased son, Beau, served in Iraq for a full year before that. Well, maybe it's because of what I've seen over the years as senator, vice president, and president traveling these countries. A lot of our veterans and their families have gone through hell. Deployment after deployment, months and years away from their families, missed birthdays, anniversaries, empty chairs of holidays, financial struggles, divorces, loss of limbs, traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress. We see it in the struggles many have when they come home. We see it in the strain on their families and caregivers. We see it in the strain on their families when they're not there. We see it in the grief borne by their survivors. The cost of war They will carry with them their whole lives. Most tragically, we see in the shocking and stunning statistic that should give pause to anyone who thinks war can ever be low grade, low risk or low cost. Eighteen veterans on average who die by suicide every single day in America. Not in a far off place but right here in America. There's nothing low grade or low risk or low cost about any war. It's time to end the war in Afghanistan. As we close 20 years of war and strife and pain and sacrifice, it's time to look to the future, not the past, to a future that's safer, to a future that's more secure to future that honors those who served and all those who gave what President Lincoln called their last full measure of devotion. I give you my word with all of my heart. I believe this is the right decision, a wise decision, and the best decision for America. Thank you. Thank you, and may God bless you all. And may God protect our troops.
2: He is not taking questions. I have a lot to say about what we just heard over the last 20 minutes, but it's going to have to wait till tomorrow because Wisconsin's afternoon news is up next.